If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From his turn as Shakespeare in Upstart Crow to his historical sketches with Robert Webb, comedian and actor David Mitchell's work has often touched on the past. Now he's penned his first history book, Unruly, which charts England's monarchy from its earliest days to the reign of Elizabeth I. Matt Elton caught up with David to find out more. So, David, people who have seen your TV work might not be entirely surprised that you've written a history book, given there's a rich theme of history that runs through it. But what led you to actually sit down to write this, your first history book? Well, it's a combination of things. I started writing during the lockdown. You know, obviously the lockdown was pretty depressing and COVID was frightening and all that. And and I got to thinking about the Vikings. I don't know why, you know, there's a lot of thinking done. So at some point in my thinking, it, it occurred to me that when the Vikings started attacking England, that was a little bit like what it was like for us when COVID happened, in that it was just something desperately bad and frightening and and life-changing that came out of the blue, um, literally out of the blue in the case of the Vikings, if it was a clear day. And so I started typing about that and how history has these things in it. Uh, and COVID was one of them where, where just suddenly something happens and it's not part of a trend. I mean, you can, you can see why it happens afterwards, but you can't really spot it in advance. And then you're just 
there you are in the history, a victim of history, an experiencer of history, an enjoyer of history. Call it what you like, but the history is happening to you. It's not to do with you. It's to do with it. So I started typing about the Vikings and the tone of the book came basically came from I read another uh, a history book called Germania or Germania by Simon Winder who I haven't met and uh, I would love to partly to ask him how to pronounce the name of his book but it's great and I really enjoyed it and I loved the combination I mean he's extremely learned but also very funny and the sort of combination of of a really interesting insight into aspects of German history with personal anecdotes and jokes and irreverence I thought was brilliant and I thought I'd like to try and write something in that tone so as I was sitting there typing about the how miserable it is to encounter the Vikings I had that sort of feel in my head and I enjoyed writing it it came easily and so I thought I got to sort of 30,000 words quite quickly and I hadn't even got to the, the Norman Conquest so I thought right, this is a, a, a new form of creativity for me uh, and let's finish it off and turn it into a book. And the focus on kings and queens is interesting. You write that more often than not, the interesting things that happened are to do with people wearing a sparkly hat. Is that why you, th- you think that focusing on the kings and queens is a useful way of telling our story like this? It's just the side of medieval history that I was most drawn to as, as, as a predictable person. My eyes were drawn to the sparkly hat like a magpie. And that's, you know, it's just the old fashioned traditional way of telling history. You talk about the people who are in charge. So that's, that's how I started telling the story. And they're interesting, the people in charge. And obviously that's not all that's happening. But if you're doing the kings and queens for the medieval period, you're at least covering the core of the political story which obviously wouldn't be the case if my book ends in 1603. And if you take the story further, you can't really tell the story of 18th century England or Britain by talking about George I and George II and George III. They're really, they're not tangential, but they're not right at the centre of power. You can follow the sparkly hat from the Anglo-Saxons onwards, and that takes you through, you see most of the stuff politically, if not socially. And I was really struck by the extent of the book that explores the Dark Ages. There's a lot of focus on this. Was that something that you were drawn to as a period or as a subject? Yes, I think so. I I think I've always found it interesting. The fact that Roman civilization was in, let's, let's call it in superficial capitalistic terms, quite advanced. They had a lot of the things that we've been enjoying since the rise of the West, like, you know, running water and central heating and rules about not everyone being armed as they walk around the place. And, it, you know, it seems on a superficial level to have been quite well organised and comparatively nice for uh, a time of, you know, incomparably lower technological accomplishment than our own age. And then that empire collapses and things aren't as nice. You know, and again, a bit like the Vikings, no one necessarily sees that coming in advance. And, you know, we've been obsessed with the decline and fall of the Roman Empire for a long time. But it's re- it really is interesting that it collapsed and left such a void and left in modern terms such economic collapse, collapse in population, collapse of infrastructure. And one of the places it hit hardest was this island, the bit of, you know, the southern part of Great Britain, which the Romans had previously occupied. So, yeah, I think if you're thinking about history, it's fascinating to think about a time when everything has just suddenly got 
got terrifyingly worse because it's important to remember that that can happen. And I hope it won't happen in my lifetime, but it'll happen at some point. Um, (laughs) Things don't just get better. One of the forms of rhetoric I find most irritating is when people say, oh, come on, it's 2023. You can't behave like that. As if the fact that it's later uh, means that people are behaving better. That's that's not how things go. Sometimes uh, we go through a period where people's behaviour improves and sometimes it gets worse. Sometimes life gets easier and sometimes it gets harder. Broadly speaking, there's a technological advance, but still that's only broadly speaking. So many of the things the Romans could do were then forgotten for centuries. Central heating often cited. You had central heating in the 4th century and they didn't really come back until the 19th and that's a long chilly gap you know you better hope when your boiler next breaks that it's it's not 1500 years before someone can mend it that is an extra worry i didn't even know that i needed to have yeah. so that's good and um, you write really interestingly about the use of the phrase dark ages which is one of those historian debates that's going on a lot at the moment what's your take on the use of that kind of of, of term well i think it's quite it seems like quite a good label for the you know, the bit just after the Romans have gone, certainly in England and I suspect in other parts of Western Europe. I don't think you can label that period of history globally with that term, but it's it seems quite evocative of the sort of economic and societal collapse that was endured uh, in this part of the world then. Obviously, I, th- I, I get slightly frustrated by historians' wish to sort of firstly to come up with the term. You sort of go, OK, yeah, that's a shorthand for something that was happening. And then other people saying, of course, you mustn't call it that. And you sort of go, doesn't it remain? I'm not saying that, you know, those two words encapsulate the era entirely, but they're not a bad title. I believe historians don't like the term the anarchy being used about the civil war that happened between Stephen and Matilda. Um, and I, again, I sort of think, I think that's quite, it's quite a good term for it, the anarchy. I mean, it's, it's not that, you know, I don't know how you define an anarchy in the way you can define a pandemic. Maybe it didn't hit proper official international anarchy status. But, you know, you, you get the vague picture that things went uh, a bit to crap. We mentioned at the start that history's been something that we can trace through through your career. And I think it's right in saying that it even extends further back than that. You write in the book about a trip to see the Alfred Jewell, for instance. Perhaps you can talk a bit about that. Well, yes, that was when I was 10. I grew up in Oxford and the Alfred Jewell is, is in Oxford. And uh, yeah, we, it was announced when we all turned up one September, new class and everything. And the teacher said, and of course, in a few weeks, we'll have our trip to see the Alfred Jewell. And you, and you sort of go, what? Okay. And, and you sort of accept it, kind of go, okay, the trip to see the Alfred Jewell, because you're being told new stuff all the time. And so we sort of, you know, all said, okay, that, that whatever it was, that Friday, we're all off to see the Alfred Jewell. Looking back, you said, sort of, what an odd thing to say. And it's just one little thing to go and look at. It was a very enjoyable trip. We went to the Ashmolean Museum. We got to go around the gift shop, got to look at some of the other things there. And as the focus of the trip, we looked at this small, sparkly object, which, you know, is a, is a lovely, sparkly object. I heartily recommend. And it made a change from, you know, not seeing the Alfred Jewel. So, yeah, that felt like a good thing to focus on in the book. Um, the thing about the Alfred Jewel that, that is interesting when you look at it is you sort of see that is some lovely stuff they've done with the gold around it in the writing and they apparently it's called filigreed gold which is a good name for that sort of twiddly work they've done it's lovely and then in the middle of it there's a picture which is 
absolutely dreadful. And you sort of think that whoever drew that has really let the other guys down. I hope it was the same person that did the jewellery, because then they can sort of figure, well, you know, you can't be good at everything. But there's a drawing of it. Apparently, it's not Alfred. Most people reckon it's supposed to be Jesus. Um, but you really, you'd have to know. You vaguely get a sense. It's like a, a sort of three-year-old's first attempt to um, encapsulate a human. But in the context of uh, maybe it was a competition they ran to encourage art among the young. (laughs) By the time we reach 1066, you write that it's interesting that England's most uh, pucker lineage is a descent from thieving thugs. (laughs) Um, Could you talk a bit about that interpretation of uh, that moment? (laughs) Well, I mean, that's what happened. (laughs) I mean, the truth is, what I say in the book is that the whole notion of kingship derives from essentially the same technique as is used by organized criminals that that they when the anglo-saxons arrived and started settling the land that they coalesced into groups and then to larger groups and finally into kingdoms and this process of coalescing was driven by violence and protection and driven by well he's we'd better be nice to him he seems a bit harder than us he's got a few guys who seem to be working for him and uh, in fact the word lord in English derives from the old English word that means bread giver. And so you could sort of see that what the early uh, important people in Anglo-Saxon England provided was shelter, food, and, you know, it's essentially a sort of cocoon where violence is repelled by the violence of your own lord. And those turned to kingdoms. And then later on, when the Anglo-Saxons Christianized, they adopted the notion of coronation and anointing and the whole God-given right-to-rule idea was co-opted, which made kingship feel like it was something sort of ancient and natural. And then the myth of King Arthur evolved and all this. But it, it all comes from just the local hard man assuming control over a larger and larger area until it became a kingdom. And when William the Conqueror invaded in 1066, that's just sort of part of that. He claimed that he was Edward the Confessor's declared and therefore rightful heir. Harold of Hastings declared the same thing. We can't really know. Uh, there seems to be slightly more evidence in William's favour, but then he won. And famously, history is written by the victors, or as I say in the book, written by some nerdy monks who the victors have told to write it. The, the victors themselves are too busy feasting usually. So yeah, he invaded and he won the battle and that means he was the rightful king. And that's broadly, you know, theft in the same way as if you go into someone's house, take the telly away and say, because I've got the telly, I'm the rightful owner. You're a thief. So yeah, that's that is thieving thuggery. That's where it started. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son? They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. And it's interesting because this sort of notion of storytelling as being the basis of power reaches a peak in the reign of John, who I think you say, because he believed so much in medieval kingship, that almost brought the whole thing toppling down. Well, it's, that's, I mean, that's something you look at, uh, it's outside the scope of my book, but you look at Charles I, he definitely believed in kingship. And, the, you know, just as the axe was going through his neck, he was still thinking they're going to regret this because I'm supposed to be in charge. And so, yes, much while kingship in the mists of the past started with the techniques of the mafia they certainly come to believe their own hype and some of the most disastrous monarchs are the ones that most completely believe in their right to rule because then essentially they feel they can do no wrong the ones that you feel in the back of their minds must have thought i'm quite lucky to be in charge of everything there's someone to a good thing here i'd better be careful i'd better try and stabilize the situation and make people feel that they're getting something themselves from this uh, arrangement from this relationship those are the good kings henry the first who, who nicked the throne but then ushered in an era of tremendous stability that was stability born out of on the one hand he was vicious to those that opposed him but those that were decent to him he was decent to and he was even-handed once things were on an even keel now i can't believe that he wasn't thinking slightly i, I you know could be kind of anyone who's king so you know i'd i'd better tread carefully whereas john absolutely exudes the complete sense of entitlement and then people have to find a way round the institution of kingship and that's where magna carta comes from in a way it was our, our most ineffective kings that ushered in constitutional change so perhaps we should be most grateful to john and his son henry the third who because of their various levels of incompetence triggered both magna carta and then parliament but when there's a good king on the throne people don't tend to feel the need to rein him in with sort of constitutional innovation i wanted to get into some of the the later kings and some of the stories about them but before we do we should acknowledge the fact that the majority of them are men because of the period you're writing about absolutely what are your thoughts about what that says well i mean i think it's i think we know what it says it says that this is an incredibly (laughs) sexist era where the, the notion of women making decisions and being in charge of things on any level right down to the domestic was entirely rejected by that patriarchal society so that's why all the the rulers were men, uh, because everyone thought, I say everyone, all the men thought, but probably some of the women also thought, because it had always been this way, oh, that no, no, of course, it must be a man who's in charge. And huge problems came when attempts were made 
to allow a woman to be in charge. When Henry I died and his only legitimate heir uh, at that point was his daughter, he had very, very clearly said that she is going to be the monarch, the sovereign, and then her, uh, you know, her children probably her sons, would rule after her. But she was going to be the first queen regnant. He decided, and all of the noblemen had gone, absolutely, Your Majesty, we'll do that. We'll swear allegiance to you and her. And then when he died, they completely went back on their promises and a man took the throne. Now, she wasn't having it. And that's the anarchy, as it's now no longer called, ensued because it was a huge civil war between Stephen, the non-rightful king who'd seized the throne, and Matilda, who was the the rightful heir, but wasn't essentially allowed to rule. And that's a combination of people thinking, oh, it wouldn't work if a woman was in charge, and people thinking that other people think it wouldn't work if a woman was in charge. So it's both straightforward sexism and the sort of sexism projected onto other people. And that becomes self-fulfilling. Because people think that, it doesn't work out, and so people continue to think that. There's no doubt, looking at the time, that Matilda was a far more capable operator than Stephen. She was starting from a position of huge disadvantage, and she nearly took over the kingdom, and certainly secured the kingdom for her son. But people at the time will just have thought, you see, if a woman tries to be in charge, this is what happens. Um, And so hundreds of years later, when Henry VIII uh, hasn't got a son, he's panicking because he thinks there'll be chaos if he can't leave a male heir. And then what eventually happens once he's triggered a reformation is he does have one feeble male heir who doesn't survive very long and then two queens. And the second of those queens, Elizabeth I, is one of the most effective rulers in the whole period covered by my book. Before we get to Henry VIII, there's a whole string of male rulers, one of which is Edward I, who you write intriguingly that if he'd been a batsman in cricket, he would have played spin badly. (laughs) Perhaps you can talk through that analogy, because I have to confess I've never heard that before. Well, I'm glad you haven't heard it before. I'd be shocked if you say, oh, yeah, the old (laughs) Edward I can't play spin line. That's a bit of a a cliche. I just struck me that Edward I, obviously Edward I is pretty effective. He he sort of took over Wales, which you wouldn't necessarily be in favour of if you were Welsh, but it was definitely his aim so it was a mission accomplished and he wanted to take over Scotland and when the Scottish royal line died out he tried his best uh, and it totally failed and and massively soured Anglo-Scottish relations probably to this day and it struck me for all his effectiveness the thing he struggled with was nuance and the nuanced idea that the Scottish kings and the English kings sort of rubbed along and there was an acceptance of England's greater economic force that meant the Scottish kings would be kind of respectful but still in charge of Scotland, he couldn't handle that. That was too subtle for him. And for me, that's a bit like the difference between fast bowling and spin bowling in cricket. Spin bowl, you have to sort of accept. It's all, it's all a bit weird. You've got to be a bit flexible. You've got to uh, change tack at the last minute. Fast bowling, if you've got a quick eye, you look at it and you hit it. I mean, I can do neither of those things, but, uh, you know, I've observed this done. And there are some batsmen who are great at hitting fast bowling, and then a spinner comes on, and everything's a bit nuanced and confusing. And I think Edward I, it's very easy. When he's marching into Wales, taking the place over, he knows what's going on. The idea of the nuanced diplomatic relation that essentially the feudal uh, system of power necessitated was a bit much for him. And there's so much of it in this era when it's not clear 
exactly who's in charge. The huge amounts of France that the English kings controlled for a lot of this period are nominally part of the Kingdom of France. So even as Henry I, say, or Henry II, would conquer and run an area of France, he still paid homage to the King of France for those lands. And that's a very nuanced idea. And Edward I wasn't great with it. And the relations between the kings of England and Scotland had been pretty good until Edward I. There was a sense that they were kind of colleagues. And then he absolutely destroys that situation and, you know, creates a a Scotland with very, very independent feelings that that, that sees England as an enemy, not a neighbour, and immediately forges a long-term alliance with France. Now, in terms of the aims of the English monarchy, that couldn't have been a bigger disaster. Rewinding, one other person I wanted to talk about was Richard the Lionheart, who you say we've always had a sort of a strange and a spiky relationship with, <laughs> but who in terms of symbolism is remained very important. Well, I, I think it's uh, it's just the symbolism that's the problem. Because Richard the Lionheart, if we met, he's basically, he's French. Uh, it's a big, posh French family, the Plantagenets. And what he wants to do is control areas of France, give the King of France a rough ride and go on crusade. Those are his priorities. One of his many, many assets is that he happens to be King of England. And as far as he's concerned, that asset is just there to be milked for cash to pay for a crusade to go and, you know, fund more Islamophobic violence. And that's who he is. And he's never pretended to be anything else. And it is very clear at the time. He was hardly in England, so uninterested by it was he. He was just there to get resources out of it. But unfortunately for his reputation, the fact that his badge, the Three Lions, has been adopted by England, and he has this name Lionheart, which sounds all sort of English-ish because of the Lions Association with England, which, if you think about it, is bonkers. There are no lions in England apart from in the zoo. But he he sort of gets condemned as a hypocrite for having projected all this Englishness down the ages when, in fact, he was all French and wanting to go to the Holy Land. Uh, and I think that's rather unfair on him. And it's it's interesting that the three lions on his badge, some people think, represent not England, but one of those lions is England, one of them is Normandy, and the other one is Aquitaine. So it may be that the three lions on the England football shirt, two-thirds of them, represent areas of France. It's so strange how that symbolism we use unthinkingly, even question why there's three lions or why they're lions. Yes. I mean, it's not the obvious animal for England, is it? Even if you're going to pick a nice fierce predator, you'd sort of think we're a bit short of them. But, you know, maybe three foxes or three swans. There are plenty of swans, but there are literally no lions. (laughs) Back in those days, there might have been one mangy one in the Tower of London. Um, One of the other moments in English history that's always used as part of its identity is 1415 in Agincourt. And you write that you used to find those victories enjoyable, but you don't so much anymore. What's changed and how can we now kind of see that moment? Well, partly, I think, deriving sort of patriotic or even borderline nationalistic comfort from history is something that is easier for a schoolboy to enjoy than a middle-aged man. So that's part, it's partly I'm just aging and suspicious of easy narrative. But the, the other thing is, obviously, what's impressive about Agincourt and about Cressy and Poitiers as well is that a smaller English army absolutely routes a larger French army. In the terms of football, of England v France, whatever, you sort of think, great, we were the underdog and we won. How you know, amazingly impressive. But then I suddenly realised that the reason 
the English army is relentlessly outnumbered, is that all of these battles are happening in France. And that's because we were the invaders. And suddenly you sort of think, I'm not sure we get to call ourselves the underdogs in that context. We've, we've sort of gone over there and made a load of trouble. We're outnumbered in the same way as if the, a burglar picked the wrong time to nick stuff from a house. He might be outnumbered by the residents. But you don't suddenly start rooting for him. He still come and cause trouble. Looked at in that context, you suddenly don't think of the brave, plucky little English. You think about the nasty, violent English. You go, go home. One of the things that's bleak, but also I find slightly amusing about the medieval period is the relentless insistence of the English kings that they're going to take over and control large areas of France. Uh, and for many hundreds of years, their claims to actually be the kings of France. And this is it's an entirely fruitless ambition that killed a lot of people. They were never going to succeed from any distance at all. You can realise that France is just a much larger, more populous, more powerful state. And it's impossible for England as a state to control it for more than a short period of time and there's nothing noble about the aim to do that but that is what a lot of medieval kingship was focused on it's interesting you mentioned the idea there of rooting for one person or the other because you write in the book that you're not a professional historian so you don't have to pretend that you haven't on occasion <laughs> picked a side yeah. are there any characters or figures in this book who you found yourself rooting for well i as i said all my life i've rooted for harold at the battle of hastings like I think if I root hard enough, it'll go the other way. I just feel sorry for him. There's something about the way his life was panning out so well. The old useless king has died and he's consolidated his power and he just seems very professional. When he knew William was going to invade, but he got he gets his armies ready all around the south coast. He's uh, organising the whole thing from the Isle of Wight, and they're waiting. He's ready. Uh, and then the weather is against William, so William doesn't come at the time you'd expect him. So he, the army goes home. Harold Hardrader invades in the north. He has to go and fight him. And, and everything has gone unluckily for him, despite exemplary organisation for the era. And there he is. Nevertheless, on Senlac Hill, when William turns up with a balancing force, more forces to come the next day, the whole of England consolidated behind him, he's done everything right, and he just says to the guys on the hill, whatever you do, don't run down the hill. Just wait for them to come to us and block them. This is a defensive operation. That's how Wellington won the Battle of Waterloo. If he'd allowed his troops to go chasing after Napoleon's old guard, they would have been toast. And so I, I feel sorry that from that strong position, well organised, Harold's army doesn't obey him. The numbers get whittled down. He takes an arrow to the eye and it's all over. Uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult not to feel sorry for him. One king who has a much more contested legacy, I suppose, is Richard III, who there are strong feelings surrounding. <laughs> how did you approach how you, you tackled that person, I suppose? Well, I, I, I think for, for me, the whole uh, Richard III, uh, you know, uh, has wrongly, has been sort of slandered by the Tudors and historians subsequently as a result. I just feel it's been a bit overplayed. If, uh, I feel the, the, the notion, the Tudors obviously wanted to depict him as a villain. When we get that, that's straightforward. Uh, but that doesn't mean he wasn't one. It doesn't mean the Tudors had nothing to go on. And I think the fact that the Tudors wanted him to seem nasty 
That doesn't mean that he was suddenly nice. No kings were then. They were all ruthless. And it seems to me that it's very unlikely that the princes in the tower were killed by order of anyone other than him, because where were they if he hadn't done away with them at the beginning of his reign? He definitely usurped the throne. So it it doesn't seem likely that he would have allowed them to continue to, you know, potter about the place as uh, more rightful claimants to it. So I think the people have taken the notion that the Tudors wanted him to seem as nasty as possible and leapt to the contrary conclusion that therefore he must have been amazingly nice and never put a foot wrong. And I just don't think the evidence is there for it. I think Henry VII was was a sort of cold, ruthless, unattractive figure. Uh, He probably would have killed the princes in the tower, but the evidence suggests that the equally nasty man who preceded him happened to do it. Are you surprised by the depth of feeling people like Richard III can still prompt? (laughs) Well, I mean, I feel like a hypocrite for saying it. It does surprise me, but then I've just said how much I root for Harold at Hastings. So it's, you know, nice for people to get involved. But there's there's a seriousness to the enthusiasm for Richard III that I find slightly ridiculous. And that the whole arguments about, you know, whether he was going to be buried in Leicester or York, I I think people could probably focus on more important things in their lives. Uh, But still, very exciting to find a corpse in a car park and discover it was him. So the other thing that that draws out is that some of these people caught up in this story are really not having a great time. They have quite unhappy lives. Do you think there are lessons here for how we regard the monarchy more generally? I think the short answer is no. I think the monarchy now is a very different institution. I think to structure a country around a figurehead rather than give the power and the praise, as it were, the adulation to the same figure, I think it's quite a sensible system. I don't think we'd be getting better service out of our prime ministers if they were also crowned and or like the American presidents, treated with the respect you owe to the notion of the country. And I, I think it's very useful to separate the respect to the country that might focus on a figurehead and the day-to-day of running a democratically elected government. I think that's quite a good system. It's weird that that came out of an institution of real power, but it seems to be a, a, a relatively effective fudge. And I, and I wouldn't back our current crop of politicians to forge a better constitution. But Obviously, as you talk about the unhappiness of the people, I do feel sorry for the royal family that they're thrust into that role. And I I think they should be fully aware that they they don't have to do it. I think, you know, I think it should be seen as a perfectly reasonable choice to abdicate in favour of the next in line until you have someone from that family who is content to do the job. But I think in general, they do want to because... That's the context they've been brought up in. I think, you know, Prince Charles is defined by waiting for the job he has now. And so I think it would be an odd and unsatisfying conclusion to his life's journey to then go, actually, I don't fancy it. I'd rather be a private citizen than I can say what I think about the environment. Um, but yes, it's, it's an odd situation they're in. I don't think they're lucky, but, you know, people have worse problems. Can we trace a moment in this story where real doubt started to creep in about the power of monarchy? Was there a moment at which the public at large started to question it? I think so. I mean, I don't know about the public at large because we know so little about most of the lives of the people at that time. But the the people whose views come down to us who are largely 
quite privileged people. I think you can see that there's a real sea change in the reign of Richard II. And that's not the beginning of his reign when there's the, what's called the Peasants' Revolt, when there's a huge uprising which has almost sort of socialist undertones, really. But even in that uprising, where they hate gentlemen, they hate aristocrats, they still believe in kingship. They think the king is badly advised. But later in Richard II's reign, you feel that the parliament and the aristocracy are, are absolutely at their wit's end. And, you know, previous bad kings they've reigned in, as I said, with Parliament and Magna Carta, and they just think, nah, this, this isn't going to work. We've got to get rid of him. And they do get rid of him, despite the fact that he's undoubtedly the rightful king. And for me, the uh, institution of kingship, of, of monarchy, never quite recovers from there. They've got rid of one king, and they know that no king has to be there. They don't have to resort to constitutional innovation anymore. They can just get rid of the king and have someone different. And that's hugely destabilising. And so you've got Henry IV, who is the usurper. He comes in and has a very, very wobbly reign. Then you have Henry V. Now, Henry V is obviously a great operator. And so his reign goes beautifully. But he's an anomaly. And when he dies young, and he's not even a toddler, his baby, Henry VI, inherits the throne, then we go into a period of unprecedented instability. Because Henry VI is obviously initially a minor, but no better when he's grown up. He's just no good. And so all those notions of getting rid of him uh, start entering people's minds again in a way they just hadn't done before they got rid of Richard II. And then we have the Wars of the Roses, which, which essentially creates a huge violence and instability until the Tudors take charge. And the Tudors, are, their claim to the throne is so sketchy, their very existence is basically an admission that, well, kind of anyone can be king. Uh, let's just hope for a bit of stability and uh, relative competence from them. So, yes, I think that the magical notion of kingship is kind of shot by then for most people. But then, as I said earlier, when Charles I was on the throne over 100 years later, he still seems to believe it and very little good it does him. Yeah. The last monarch you cover in your book is Elizabeth I. Why did you decide to end the book at that point? I wanted a, an object that made sense. I wanted a, a book on the kings and queens of England made sense to me. I didn't want it to be totally superficial and to have taken it up further than 1603 it would either have had to have been much longer or much more superficial you can't tell the story through kings alone after 1603 as effectively as you can up to that point i thought to stop earlier would have been a book about our early history and that might be of less interest but i thought if i take it from the beginning of kingship in england when the anglo-saxons came and there is no england before the anglo-saxons is named after them to the point at which england and scotland have the same monarchy in a way that has turned out to be permanent that feels like a, a coherent period of history where you can say this is a monarchy of England. I'm not claiming to be covering Scotland uh, or Ireland as well. But yet it's a book where you're getting a fair chunk of England's history. It's not a book for specialists. That's a long-winded explanation. I think I explain it better in the book. But <laughs> <laughs> No, that was good. And what's interesting to me is that the, the final person you focus on in the book isn't a king or queen at all. It's Shakespeare. Why did you end the book on, on that note, I suppose? I've played Shakespeare in a sitcom. I'm obsessed with him. 
I think, you know, before the sitcom, I thought he was the greatest writer that there ever was. And it's not, it's not a, a particularly interesting insight. Most people think that. But it, I think his sudden existence puts these kings and queens into context because there's something he's one of the most special people who ever lived. And he just randomly emerged from provincial England in the late 16th century. And it is a wonderful thing that he did. And it reminds me always of how wonderful humanity is, frankly, that we can produce these people who just have insights and give things to the world that that makes it a better place. And everyone who's enjoyed his plays and poetry ever since has had their lives enriched by his existence. You can't really say that about any of the kings and queens. None of those rulers have contributed in a positive, meaningful way to the lives of strangers in a way that Shakespeare has, or frankly, in a way that Elton John has. You know, it, it's there are artists, singers, writers, that they're to me far more important than rulers, and certainly more important than rulers who just got their uh, power by accident of birth. So for, for me, the emergence of Shakespeare at that time is, is a reminder that you can build a society where the things that matter come more to the fore. And the society we're in is, a, is an example of one, imperfect though it is. And these hundreds of years of all, all everyone is focusing on is the doings of people whose power is entirely illegitimate. For me, it's an uplifting way to end uh, that story. Because here, here he comes and he's the sign of something else, the, the meaningful element of the Renaissance that ushers in an, an era of greater literacy and, and greater sort of artistic involvement, I suppose. That was David Mitchell talking to Matt Elton. David's book, Unruly, A History of England's Kings and Queens, is out now, published by Michael Joseph. You can read more from David in the December issue of BBC History magazine, on sale from the 26th of October. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.